Sweet. Hey, I'm going to go a different direction this morning, so turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. And uh, hey, we're, we're going to take a couple weeks holidays after today. We're going to rush out pretty quick after the service. It's Lisa's brother's 60th birth, birthday. So we got a family shindig tonight in Abbotsford. So we're going to run off to that. And so uh, we'll be away for a couple weeks. But uh, yeah, looking forward to that. Some time hanging with the family. And so sweet. Um, and then just a couple prayer requests this morning. Just... I want to share those with you. Uh, Julie asked if we just lift up her son Trevor in prayer. He's just got himself in a world of hurt. And we want to just pray that God would meet him and that he would cry out to the Lord in the midst of that. And then Daryl asked me for a friend of his that's been, is in day 39 in rehab. And so we just want to lift her up as well too. And so let's, uh, let's pray, okay? Lord, we just thank you for the power of prayer. God, what a gift that uh, people don't even know and we're like praying for them and bringing them before the throne of heaven. And our uh, God, today we just want to lift up to you, Trevor. God, we thank you for Trevor. And Lord, you know exactly where that young man is at, that young father is at. You know all the things, all the details of his life. You know uh, the pain of his life, God, you know his great need for you. And Lord, we are asking that you just reveal yourself to Trevor, God, that you'd bring him to the end of himself. That God, that he would just come to that place, God, where he would cry out to, the, to, to Jesus and that you would save him. And so Lord, we ask your protection upon him, God. Keep him safe. And yet, Lord, at the same time, we pray that he would come to the end of himself. And so, God, get a hold of his life, whatever you've got to do, Lord. We just commit Trevor to you, Lord, and we pray that you'd continue to just uh, lay him upon our hearts, God, that we would be burdened to pray for this young man, this young father. And so, God, uh, reach into his life. Touch him, we pray. Lord, I pray for uh, Daryl's friend who's uh, in rehab, day 39. Lord, would you set this woman free from drugs and alcohol and substance abuse, Lord? We pray that... Uh, in that place, Lord, she would hear clearly the message of the gospel, that she would hear about Jesus, that she would surrender her life to Jesus. And God, just give her strength, Lord. I pray that in times of uh, temptation, Lord, she would know to call upon you. And God, would you have your hand upon her. And Lord, as we just consider your word today, God, we thank you we can do something different. Come to the Psalms this morning. Would you speak to our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, Lord, we, we thank you for your word. It's living and it's active. God, it changes our lives. And we invite you, just, just come and change our hearts. Do a work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Right on. So Psalm 32, turn there. If you're not there in your Bibles, love this psalm. It's titled, Blessed Are the Forgiven. And verse 1 says this. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Blessed is the man. Does that sound similar to you from anywhere? Was there a great teacher who once gave a bunch of teachings like that? They're called what? The Beatitudes. Jesus taught them Matthew chapter 5 and he used this same saying. Blessed is this person. 
And this psalm starts right with that. And in fact, it's interesting. There are seven psalms like this, okay? There's seven psalms where, well, you, they're, they're actually sometimes called the psalms of the Beatitudes, where the psalmist writes, and he said, blessed is, and I'm going to give them to you. I'll just read through. I should actually put these on the screen, but I didn't. The first one is Psalm 1, which says this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. Then there's Psalm 32, which is our text this morning. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Then Psalm 34. We're actually going to do Psalm 34 when I come back from the holidays, okay? Which says this. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 40 says this. Blessed is the man who the Lord makes, oh, sorry, who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Psalm 94 says this. Blessed is the man you discipline, O Lord, whom you teach out of your law. Psalm 112 says, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. And Psalm 127, the last one says this. Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of a womb. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are, one, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Blessed is the man. Seven, seven Psalms. And it just simply means this. Oh, how happy. Happy's the person. Happy is the person who has uh, these characteristics or these realities in their lives. And for the context of this morning, though it's seven times in the Psalms, Psalm 32 here. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man who, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This is a Psalm of David. That's what we read here right off the hop. And it's likely if you took the Psalms and you kind of put them in chronological order, this one would be probably come right after Psalm 51. So, you know, they're not in chronological order. But I would say it's probably Psalm 51 and then David probably wrote Psalm 52. And in Psalm 51, that's the Psalm where David recounts the confession of his sin. After he's been involved in an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, he's plotted and planned the murder of her husband Uriah. He's covered it all up. He thought he did a pretty good job. It's unconfessed. And then... Uh, the prophet Nathan comes to him and calls him to repentance and confronts him. And after coming clean before the Lord, that story that we know about David so well, David uh, tells the story of his repentance in Psalm 51. And here in Psalm 32, he tells the experience of his life before repentance and after repentance. And in the middle was the forgiveness of God. Now, if you've ever come clean in Jesus and come to the throne of grace, confessed your sin, then you know the peaceful reality of, of heart and mind, the tranquility, the bliss of heart, the harmony, the rest that's between you and the Lord when you've experienced his forgiveness. 
the mercy of God. You know, knowing your sins are forgiven is, greater, is of greater worth than, than money, than health, than security, than whatever it is. You can be poor. You can be sick. You can even be full of sor- sorrow, but there is great contentment and peace in knowing that as far as you and the Lord are concerned, your sins are forgiven. And David was a man. We know this about David. The the scripture calls him a man after the heart of God. He had cultivated a close personal relationship with the Lord. He'd seen miracles. He'd seen the provision of God. God had proved his faithfulness to him. And David is described as that man. A man after the heart of God. And yet... Even in having this relationship with God, we know the story of David that in a season of inactivity, wherein he was idle and being apathetic when he should have been at war, sin came and took advantage of his spiritual indifference and David gave in to the desires of his flesh and the result was not just a little indulgence on David's part. No, David dipped his toe in the water and he went in the whole way, committed adultery, Murder and and the result was just not only hard-hearted indifference for his actions and trying to justify it, but there was also a cooling off in his life of of a once vibrant relationship with the Lord. And so he comes clean in Psalm 51 as we read about. He records... Uh, the confession of his sin, and Psalm 32, he begins to speak of the blessedness of knowing that he's forgiven. And, and the blessedness is not ascribed on the basis of, you know, David getting some rekindled ability and, and diligence for law-keeping, following the rules. No, David was counted righteousness and forgiven apart from his works. His faith and God's ability to forgive was what counted David as righteousness, just as righteous, just as Abraham believed God and he was counted as righteous. See, See, the Bible tells us that when God pays man back with the wages that he deserves, the wages of sin are what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Abraham believed God, he was counted as righteous. David believed in God's righteousness. When he confessed his sin, he experienced the blessed result of knowing that his sins were forgiven. And when we trust in Jesus, when we trust in the work of the cross, the shed blood of our Savior, there is forgiveness of sin. We're forgiven. David, blessed is the man. Happy is the man. Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. The self-righteous Pharisee doesn't know that reality. They don't share in that blessing. You know, I think of the story of the prodigal son, who when he came to his senses, the, the scripture tells us this. He said, I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned before you and before God. No longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he arose and he began to make his way home and his father saw him when he was a long way off and he felt compassion towards him and he ran to his son and he embraced him and he kissed him and that son said to his father, Father, I've sinned 
I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said, called his servants and said, bring the best robe. Put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Get a fattened calf and kill it. Let's eat and let's celebrate. Not a pig, did you notice that? Don't get a pig and kill it. A calf. For this is my son who was dead and he is alive. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. Music and dancing and eating and the party began. And there was no demand from the father. Well, we'll get this sorted out. You go to your room and clean your room. You go out into the field and do your work. No, he, he confessed his sin and imputed to that young man was the full instantaneous forgiveness of his father. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. And sin is such a burden. It's troublesome. It's like a millstone. But forgiveness, man, that's a blessing. The Hebrew word for forgiven, nasah, it literally means this, to lift up, to bear, to carry, to take away. It's like, you say, Jesus, forgive me. It's like he takes it away. He takes it away. He carries it off. He carries the sin off. He removes it as far as the east is from the west. He carries it away. Remember the great Bible story of the book of Judges when Samson uprooted the gates of the Philistine city, pulled them right up out of the ground, put them on his shoulder and carried them off and set them on the hill. Greater still is Jesus. Just picks up the burden of sin and he bore it upon his shoulders and he carried the cross on our behalf and he bore our judgment. And 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just and he will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the truth is, as followers of Jesus, we just never graduate from the essential provision of our Savior Jesus. You know, whether sinner, saved, self-righteous, we need Christ's forgiveness. We need Christ's forgiveness. You know, Mount Sinai, Exodus 34, records Moses' meeting with the Lord when the Lord introduced himself to Moses and it says this in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, as the Lord introduced himself, he said this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. The scripture tells us that Moses bowed his head toward the earth and he began to worship the Lord and he said, if I found favor in your sight, Lord, please come into our midst. Come, come with us. We're a stiff-necked people, but, but pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. And that's you and me, right? We're stiff-necked people, aren't we? But the Lord's in our midst and he's willing to forgive and and in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting against us our trespasses, our sin. And just like verse 1, verse 2 begins with the same blessing. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. 
So if we call Psalm 32 one of the seven Beatitude Psalms, this Psalm is different in this sense. It's unique in this sense because it stands alone because the blessing is doubled. This is the double portion for the sons and daughters of God right here. The blessing of being forgiven. The happiness of the forgiven is a double portion from the Lord. And, and the words in those first two verses used to describe our rebellion against God is this, is, is sin, transgression, and iniquity. Spurgeon called them the three-headed dog at the gates of hell. Transgression, sin, and iniquity. But he said this, but our Savior has silenced their barking. Our Savior has silenced the barking forever against his believing ones and the trinity of sin has been overcome by the trinity of heaven. I like that. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards the crowd and he said this, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, we have a Savior who has offered himself as a substitute and the forgiveness that he offers us is real. The forgiveness that is found in him is a real experience. It, it is a reality that is great as anything that you can know in this life. It's no sham. It's not fiction. It's not counterfeit. There is nothing fake about what Jesus offers. You know, I think about this world. This world dreams of peace, but there is nothing greater than the true peace that is found in the reality of Christ Jesus. How blessed to be forgiven. And yet where forgiveness has not happened, there you will find powerful, powerful self-deception like a drug that blinds the human heart. In a life where there is no forgiveness, the scripture says you will find every behavior of the unrepentant. See, in, in the heart of the unrepentant, there is deceit. John told us that. He said in 1 John, 1 John 1, 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And there's deceit in the heart of mankind. And true forgiveness gives birth to transparency and, and simplicity and childlike faith to love. Because forgiveness frees us from guilt and frees us from transgression and sin and iniquity and the, and the fear that is seeking to preserve self. And the result is, is that in the life of the forgiven, Christ Jesus can come to the forefront. He can come right to the forefront. It's like, that's why we could serve dinner with a smile. It's like, Jesus can come to the forefront of our lives. In the forgiven life, because forgiveness is mine, you know, I can, I can tell you, man, yeah, we can all say, we're sinners, saved by grace. I can tell you, man, sometimes I'm angry. Sometimes I deal with this. Sometimes I wrestle with that. Just like everyone, all of us. And all of us have been in those places where maybe we experienced such a offense from someone or from the action of others that, that thoughts went through our mind. Man, I'd like to kill that person. You know, I could do this or I could do that. And then, and then finally, when we go to Jesus and we ask for his forgiveness, he deals with our anger and our thoughts and, and the experience of the Lord's forgiveness helps us. And then we actually get to the point where it's like, wow, we can pray for our enemies and pray for those who 
have hurt us or offended us. The, for, the forgiven can share such things because they've laid them down at the foot of the cross. But those who do not bring their sin and transgression and iniquity to Jesus, what do they do? They learn to play tricks with their conscience. They have to practice deceit within their own heart. Their lives go on to produce the fruit of the guilt of refusal to repent. Lying, hypocrisy, trickery, deception, even murder. You think about the behavior of King David. As he began to cover his tracks over his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, he lied. He brought others into the conspiracy. He sought to to get Uriah to uh, become drunk. He plotted murder. He used other people as pawns to fulfill his plans. The man who had been known as the man after God's own heart was sucked into the delusion of sin's pleasure. And in fact, David tells us in this psalm about the destruction that such uh, self-deception began to manifest in his life. Look at verse 3. He says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. Selah is this, this saying in, in the Psalms. It's some sort of instrumental break in there. And it actually, it actually means this. It emphasizes that, that you should pause in a psalm and you should think about what you just read. You ever read in the Psalms and you see Selah? It means just stop for a moment and ponder the very things you were just reading. Contemplate it. And you know, there's nothing like, I would say this, there's nothing like sharing personal experience to really drive home the understanding of something. Like, like I could tell you how to fly a plane, but the truth is, I don't fly planes. And I could tell you how to cook some amazing meal, but the truth is, I'm not a chef. I could tell you how to paint a work of art, but I'm no artist. <laughs> I could tell you how to vacuum, but I don't know how, no, just kidding. I know how to use the vacuum. Just don't like to very often, no. Here David shares the experience of self-deception in his attempt to cover up sin, and he says this, when I was silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. David says, when, when I kept sil silent rather than bringing my stuff to the Lord, my bones wasted away. Your, the bo your bones, the bones speak of the essence and substance of our structure. Your bones are the structure that support your body. And while we, we smother unconfessed sin, rages within. The language expresses the idea that your bones wear out and that they're crying out like a lion that is in distress, like a wounded animal, that your bones are crying out. And that your mind might lie and, and that your heart might deceive you, but your body is not fooled and that sin will kill you. The mouth can be silent in confession, but your bones are aware of the sorrow caused by sin. And there's this sense that it's expressing this idea, that you, this sense of being 
prematurely old, constant groaning, this feeling of heaviness, this sense of being spiritually parched and destitute, and, and it's the handiwork of guilt. Look at verse 4. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. It makes me think of the picture, the story of the magicians with Pharaoh and, and Moses. And Moses and Aaron are working these miracles and the magicians of Pharaoh, they, they recognize and they acknowledge to Pharaoh, they said, these things that these men are doing, these miracles that are being performed, they are the finger of God. They're the finger, meaning that, that they understood that what Egypt was experiencing was just the tiniest portion of God's strength. This is his finger. And you know in the New Testament that Jesus said this to the crowds that if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then you know that the kingdom of God is among you. He said, I drive out demons with the smallest power. But David said this. Look at what David said in verse 4. He said, in the silence of his unconfessed sin, the Lord did not use his finger, but he laid his hand on him. It's wonderful to know that you and I are held in the hand of God. Jesus said, no one can snatch you out of my hand. But it's a heavy thing to think about the hand of God being laid upon you. I, I'd rather be in that hand, not have it upon me. And Jesus uses a finger to, a finger to drive out a demon, but he uses the heavy hand when it comes to his desire to bring forth confession so that we can experience the reality of his forgiveness. See, the heavy hand of God is an act of grace. And unconfessed sin will not escape its weight. Boy, that hand, it's helpful when it lifts you up. But it ain't so helpful when it's pressing you down. Spurgeon said this, it's better to have the world on your shoulders than to have God's hand on your heart, like David did. David said that he felt the weight of that hand day and night. At night as he lay on his bed, the weight of God's hand over his sin. In the morning he woke and the weight of God's hand was still there. You know, 1 Samuel chapter 5 tells us of that time when the hand of God was heavy against the Philistines. They'd captured the ark. Captured the ark of the covenant. And they said this. They said send that ark away before the hand of God kills us. Because the heavy hand of God can bring death. And the wages of sin is death. What kind of effect does that have on a person? Well, I think about David. I mean, David is one of the greatest heroes of the Bible, right? One of our favorites. As a young man, he slew the lion and the bear. He killed Goliath. He took on 200 Philistines so as to win Michael, the, the daughter of Saul, to win her in marriage. David was a, a mighty warrior, a man of battle, a man of blood. He's a killing machine. You wouldn't want to meet David and Molly's Lane on a dark night, you know. None of us dudes would. You wouldn't want to you'd go fist to fist with David. He's a battle-hardened veteran, a seasoned warrior. 
But he said this, because of sin, my strength dried up as in the heat of summer. Haven't you been loving this heat? I don't know if you are. I love this heat. I'm going, okay. I love this. We're swimming all the time. My kids were swimming during the fireworks last night. And uh, it's nice, but heat will dry you up, won't it? All our lawns, my lawn's all yellow and brown. It's been scorched by the sun. And David said this, my life was scorched like a piece of grass. Once lush and, and healthy, my strength dried up like straw like summer fruit left out in the sun. In the same way that heat begins to just extract the moisture and the life of the, out of that fruit, David said, my life was becoming like, like fruit leather. And then verse five, he says this. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, my transgression, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah, there it is again. Stop and think about what I'm telling you. You know, the crazy thing about sin is this, is that, you know, you might be able to hide it from others, but God knows. God knows my transgressions and they are ever before him. And, and so confession of sin is simply an acknowledgement before the Lord. The Lord already knows it. It's no secret to him. But it's coming to the place where we're honest with ourselves and with the Lord. Okay, God. I'm not covering up anymore. I confess my sin. I agree with you about my transgression. And before David came to that point of confession, he and God were on opposite sides of the fence. God was condemning his sin and he was defending himself by rationalizing and excusing his sin. And the promise of God is this, to forgive his repenting people. He, he, he has to be believed in that. And I would say this, you know, right there is where many people seem to go astray. So even though they've, they've, you know, have God's promise that he forgives, they cannot forgive themselves. So they keep dredging up their sin and keep feeling guilty about it. And Satan gets the victory. Because while they're feeling, feeling guilty over sin and some failure, they're, they're, you know, virtually useless to the kingdom and to the cause of Christ. What do we say to such people? What does the scripture say? God says this, he's told us this, that when we repent of our sins, he removes them as far as the east is from the west. Jeremiah 31 verse 34 says, our sins are never to be remembered again when we bring them to the Lord. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. The word of God then is this to the one troubled by sin and who won't let go of, of guilt. It's this, believe God. Believe his word. Don't try to resurrect that which Jesus buried. If God says you're forgiven, you are forgiven, rejoice in it. And when we get down to it, you know, I just think it's, it's, it's almost highly, in, it is insulting to God not to believe what he has said. You're forgiven. It, it, it's, it's pride and arrogance to cling to guilt when God has promised, I forgive those who repent, I remove it. I take it away. That's why David said, 
I'm happy. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. You know, it's amazing that we can become so full of ourselves, so proud, so full of pride that we would even, I would say, refuse to do the simple thing that would lead to Christ's pardon. To acknowledge it. To own it. To bring it to Him. It's already well known to Him. He's put His hand upon us to lead us to repentance because He loves us. I would say that it's prideful to to cling to our guilt when Christ is forgiven. On the other side of the fence, was the cross not sufficient? Would we dare to suggest such a thing? Never. The cross of Christ is sufficient. When it is brought to the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. Psalm 38, 18 says this, I confess my iniquity, I'm sorry for my sin. Proverbs 28, verse 13 says, he who confesses and forsakes transgression will obtain mercy. The prodigal son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. It's not just that we confess sin, but David tells us that he confessed the iniquity of his sin. Meaning the immorality of it, the the grossly unfair behavior. To confess iniquity of sin is to confess that we participated in wickedness. Father, I'm guilty. And what does the Lord do when we confess the iniquity of our sin? He forgives. He forgives. How simple. How kind. How good of the Lord. He forgives the guilty of sin. He forgives the guilt of our sin. Deep and thorough, he cleanses us. He lances it out with his mercy. He heals us of the the virus of sin that was killing us. He restores our soul. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Double blessing. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. So David says this in verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. Preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. He's, called, he's given us a testimony of his own life. You know, I think this, you know, how many times have we been reminded and driven to the place of, of, of prayer because of the testimony of someone else who went before us? They said, this was my experience and God did this. And we're like, wow, I want that. I want that provision. I want to meet God that way. You know, it's like the gold rush. When someone finds the gold nugget, everyone goes looking for that same gold nugget to to dig. And the stories of others are meant to inspire us to live for God. And now David is trying to inspire us as he writes this psalm. What's the acceptable time to offer a prayer, he says? It's right now. It's now. We say today is the day of salvation. Between the time of sin and the day of judgment, mercy is ruling. Grace is ruling. And the hour to seek God for forgiveness is right now. Make the most of time. Don't, 
Don't slight and treat with contempt the time of forgiveness in the day of grace. For the Lord will save and he will forgive those who call upon his name. David makes this reference to the rising flood and it's a picture of Noah. Noah was saved from the rising flood because he took refuge in God's plan. The ark that he had been constructed to build, when he went into the ark, the scripture says the Lord closed the door. And when those waters rose, I'm sure that there were people, it's hard to imagine, it's awful to think about, banging on the sides of that ark. Let us in. But Noah couldn't open the door because the Lord had closed the door. You know, I think about the Israelites who passed through the waters of the Red Sea as God held back those waters so, so that they might pass through on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to pass through, he let those waters go and they were swallowed. And David says this, therefore, verse 6, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. Psalm 69 verse 1 says this, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Psalm 144 verse 7 says this, Stretch out your hand from on high, rescue me and deliver me from the many waters. David says in verse 7, You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I love that. You are my hiding place. Psalm 91 verse 1, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. You know, this is the very same guy that a few verses back was saying how the hand of God was upon him and had become oppressive to him. And now because he had confessed his sin to the Lord and come clean before the Lord, he had found mercy and he found grace and forgiveness. And now he says, now the Lord's my hiding place. remember when I was a kid, I I've told you guys this story before, but it's kind of a fun story. I, I went to camp. My cousin was there. He's about three years older than me. And we were wandering around camp, and we went into this old barn that was on the property, and we found an old truck. We took rocks. We smashed out the headlights on that truck. And then, you know, word got out in camp. Somebody smashed out the headlights on the truck. Some kids had been in there. And so we went into hiding. And uh, we actually went, we hid in his tent. And when those adults came looking for us, they found the guilty party hiding in the tent. And my cousin said, you stay here. You wait here in the tent. I'm going to go. And he went out. And I remember as a little kid, I was like five years old, his shadow being cast on the tent. And he took the heat for me while I hid in the tent. He took all the punishment. I got off. I got off from my crime, out from my crime. And, you know, it says this in Psalm 27, verse 5, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me up high on a rock. Psalm 9, verse 9 says, the Lord is a stronghold in times of trouble. David says, you surround me, God, with shouts of deliverance. That's a, that's a pretty cool picture right there. Imagine God is standing around you when you come to him and you lay out your stuff and you say, God, you gotta forgive me. 
He stands around you, he encircles you, and he begins to shout. I have delivered him. I have delivered her. They're mine. I bought them. I deliver. He's shouting over you. What a great picture of the Lord. I bet Jesus shouts, sin had entangled them, but I set them free. I've delivered them. Verse 8 is a great verse, one that you probably know. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. You know, God is so good that he promises instruction and teaching and counsel to those who are repentant. He promises to teach us and instruct us and give direction to our lives. He says, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I won't just stand around you shouting, but I'll watch over you. I'm watching over you in a good sense, says the Lord. And, and the Lord is saying through David, you gotta, you're going to have to learn to follow me where I go. He says, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which has to be curbed with bit and bridle or, or it will not stay. You know, the difference between human beings and beasts is that, that, that we have, hopefully, as human beings, understanding. A horse and a mule, they have to be controlled by bit and bridle because they don't have that same understanding. But you and I can do this. We can follow the Lord willingly. Not, not follow the foolishness of the flesh, but to live for the spirit of God and the things of God. You know, there's a story of a farmer with his friend and he, they, they, they took the cart from the farm and they hooked up the mule to this cart, to the wagon, to ride into town. And when the mule was all hooked up, the friend jumped up onto the cart and then the farmer grabbed a two by four out of the back of the wagon and he took that two by four and he clubbed that mule right over the top of the head. Friends, what did you do that for? Why would you do that? And the farmer said, I just wanted to make sure I had his attention. And the moral of the story is this. Don't be a mule. Don't be a mule. And the Lord says that. Don't be like the horse or the mule. Verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Proverbs 13, 21 says this. Disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. Jeremiah 17, 7 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Look again to our text, verse 11. Last verse, it says this. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. O righteous, shout for joy, all you of upright heart. Be glad, the Lord says. Re rejoice, shout, shout for joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. You know, as we've been seeing in Philippians, that, that happiness, that rejoicing is not just a privilege in Christ Jesus, it's a duty, it is a command, it is an obligation upon us as we follow Jesus. We're not just the frozen chosen. <laughs> it's okay for us to smile because God loves us. We've been redeemed by Jesus and he saved us for the praise 
of his glorious name. And it's very normal for a forgiven person to be happy. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. That's what the scripture says. Look, I'm going to invite the worship team to come. And as they're coming, I just want us to take a moment to ask the Lord to seek our hearts. You know, David said this to the Lord. He said, Lord, search my heart. See if there's any iniquity in me. Bring it to the surface, Lord. I want to deal with it. And as I was just thinking about us this morning, that's just what we want to do. We just want to do business with the Lord this morning. Maybe that means uh, you, you got a relationship here that's been strained. Maybe it's husband, wife. Maybe it's somebody in the church. Maybe, maybe you just need to say, would you forgive me? I got to just bring this to the cross. And so can we just take that time right now? I'm going to invite you guys to stand. Stand up with me. And let's just take some time to ask the Lord to seek our hearts. And then as we do and we ask him to forgive us our sin, then we need to respond in rejoicing and praise and worship for the forgiveness of our sins. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, those of us who walk with you, we know the reality and the truth that blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. God, there's no greater depth of joy and peace in life than to know that you saved us and you redeemed us and we were cleansed by the blood of our Savior Jesus. And so Jesus, we thank you that, that you forgive sins. And so Lord, this morning, for those of us who know you, we just, we just want to ask you, Lord, would you search our hearts today? God, just see if there's any wicked thing, Lord. We ask God that you judge it out of our lives, Lord. We don't want to be robbed of joy or rejoicing in you, Lord. God, we don't want the, the heavy hand, although we're grateful for the heavy hand because it leads us to repentance, Lord, we want to be found in the hand. In the hand, Lord. And so, God, we just uh, ask you to search our hearts, Lord. Just bring it to the surface. Lord, we confess. God, it was wickedness. It was iniquity, Lord. It was sin. Would you forgive us? Would you cleanse us, Lord? Would you purify us again in the blood of Jesus Christ, Lord? Would you wash us? Make us, Lord, white as snow. We pray, Jesus. We pray that, Jesus. And Lord, this morning, I'm just going to ask every head bowed, eye, clo eye closed this morning. I want to give this opportunity today that, that maybe you're here and you don't know Jesus and you don't know the reality of what I've been talking about this morning. I, I've never known what it is to have my sins forgiven. I want to tell you this, that Jesus loves you that he came and he gave his life for you on the cross, that he purchased forgive, the forgiveness of your sins. He's already paid the price. All you have to do is receive the forgiveness that's made uh, available to you. And it, it's this simple. It's this easy. You, you repent of your sin. You say, God, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And you turn in faith to Christ Jesus. And there'll be a peace that'll come upon your life You'll be transformed. You'll be made new. God will make you new by his spirit. It's the most amazing miracle in the world that he will restore your soul. You'll be born again. And so this morning, I just want to give that opportunity. Maybe you don't know Jesus here. You've never asked him to come and to forgive your sin. I, I just get, you could just raise your hand. I'd like to pray with you this morning. I won't, I won't point you out or anything like that. I just want to give you that opportunity to seek the Lord for forgiveness today.
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thanks, Father. else this morning. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So, Lord Jesus, we just come. We thank you for the cross, Jesus. Jesus, we acknowledge that you were crucified for our sins, paid the punishment, shed your blood, and you died. You were buried in that grave for three days and then you rose from the dead because you are victorious over sin, the grave and over death, over our sin. And Lord, we just ask God for those that responded this morning that you would just come in the power of your spirit now, Lord, as they've raised their hand to you, acknowledge you, Lord, that forgiveness would be theirs in a deep and powerful way, Lord that your spirit would come and indwell, Lord, that your spirit would come and make known the reality of Christ and the reality of his forgiveness of sin, Lord. Seal it, we pray, in Jesus' name, Lord. I pray that peace would come upon those hearts, Lord. I pray that peace would come over those minds, Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you pour out your blessing upon us. Thank you, Lord, that you make us happy. You're the joy of our Lord. And we praise you and worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.